we have to understand that we have to finally uh, agree on using a differentiation approach between the countries that do have European aspirations and that do not have them as such. And uh, then the platform will be looking much more kind of coherent and uh, then we will be able to transform Eastern Partnership towards a more political integration project. Hello and welcome to Think Atlantic, a series by IRI's Transatlantic Strategic Division, in which we provide you with thought leadership for the future of the transatlantic space. My name is Thibaut Muzerg and I am your host for this show. In today's episode, we are going to talk about Europe's Eastern Partnership Initiative together with my two guests, Andreas Kubilius and Ivana Klimpusch-Sinsadze. Andreas Kubilius is currently member of the European Parliament and co-president of the Euronest Parliamentary Assembly. He was twice Prime Minister of Lithuania in 1999-2000 and 2008-2012. And we already had the pleasure to have him on the show last year when we talked about the EU's relationship with Russia, a topic which will no doubt pop up in this conversation as well. Andreas, pleasure to have you back to the show. Thank you very much and welcome. Oh, hello, hello. Hello to everybody. Ivana uh, Klimpusch-Sinsadze is uh, currently a member of the Ukrainian parliament, uh, the Verkhovna Rada, and she is head of the Parliamentary Committee on EU Integration there. Previously, she was Deputy Prime Minister for European and Euro-Atlantic Integration, and that was from 2016 to 2019. And she's also the co-author of a collective book called the Black Sea Region, Cooperation and Security building, which was published with Routledge in 2016. Ivana, thanks for taking the time to join us today and welcome to the show. It's my pleasure to be here. So for our listeners who don't necessarily know yet what the Eastern Partnership is, um, the, the, the Eastern Partnership Initiative is a policy that was launched 11 years ago by the European Union, a sort of uh, quote, special relationship, end quote, that the EU is trying to build with its eastern neighborhood, namely a group of six post-Soviet states that are Armenia, Azerbaijan, uh, Belarus, Georgia, Moldova, and Ukraine in alphabetical order, of course. Uh, the initiative was intended to provide a forum for discussions regarding trade, economic strategy, travel agreements, but it's also aimed at building a common area of shared values for democracy, prosperity, stability, and increased cooperation between the EU and its Eastern European neighbors. Last year was the 10th anniversary of the Eastern Partnership, and we were supposed to have a big celebration where the relationship was to be renewed for the next 10 years with new policies and a new uh, uh, dynamic. But then, as you know, everything uh, in 2020, COVID happened, the summit was postponed to 2021, and now we hear that it is postponed again, although the Euronest Parliamentary Assembly is happening next week. Now, this new postponement asks the question of the uh, continued relevance of the initiative in its current shape. Uh, do you feel that it is the case? Is the, the Eastern Partnership, uh, uh, will it survive another a few months of, of, of not being renewed. And in any case, what is the way forward for the policy? I will ask uh, Ivana the question first, and then I'll, I'll go move to Andreas. Uh, well, 
Is, do you see, I, I guess, uh, we, we, even though it's a pretty sad uh, thing to admit, uh, but I think in Brussels there are quite a few people who kind of secretly feel um, uh, grateful to COVID that right now they can kind of cover uh, this stagnation that, that is being felt within the Eastern Partnership because there are some other pertinent and important prog- uh, problems that are keeping everybody's attention. And uh, as in medicine, you know, um, most important is not necessarily immediately the treatment, but first that the diagnosis. So first and foremost, I think uh, also with the Eastern Partnership, we have to kind of come up with the diagnosis and then see how to to move forward and maybe it's not very diplomatic but uh, as of now it seemed that this patient is rather uh, not feeling very very lively um, from my perspective Uh, because what at this particular moment really unites uh, for example Armenia and Azerbaijan besides geographical location or what kind of common aspirations could be seen right now between uh, Moldova of President Sandu, pro-European President Sandu and uh, uh, Belarus of uh, current uh, non-recognized President uh, Lukashenko. And I think that's something that is has to be publicly admitted by high-ranking officials from from Europe, that uh, we need to do some common rethinking. And some of the ideas have been put forward basically by the European parliamentarians, and I'm sure that Andreas will be speaking about that because he was among those, and he is among those who is coming up all the time with with different additional ideas how to revive and revitalize this uh, partnership. So uh, from my perspective, the only way forward is the cardinal change of the format and the content of the Eastern Partnership. And uh, we we have to ensure that it's not a simulacre of the integration for the countries uh, that are still very much so, or many of them are pretty much under the Russian influence. And uh, we have to understand that we have to finally uh, agree on using a differentiation approach between the countries that do have European aspirations and that do not have them as such. And uh, then the platform will be looking much more kind of coherent. And uh, then we will we will be able to transform Eastern Partnership towards a more political integration project uh, for the for the countries that do have that European aspirations. And we understand everybody, I think, understands that it's very easy to destroy. So my, and then it's very difficult to build or to create something new. So my suggestion is not to destroy, but to transform. And obviously, uh, that needs also some flexibility from the bureaucracy that unfortunately, uh, always needs uh, a lot of time for reformatting anything. Okay, so we're going to get back to this to this question of the of the format, but I'd like to get back to Andreas. Uh, Andreas, do you have the feeling that quite a few of your colleagues, as Ivana was just saying, were kind of relieved that things basically are not moving forward uh, with the Eastern Partnership? I know you're I know you're not one of them, but but what what's the mood in Brussels? Well, uh, pandemic is still you know in Brussels also. So, <laughs> but if to speak more more seriously. 
uh, first of all, of course, 10 years of Eastern partnership uh, you know, brings uh, some kind of need to look more deeply into uh, both successes and, 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 uh, you know, and uh, some failures of this policy. And first of all, I would start uh, from a very clear statement, at least in my, from my point of view, Eastern partnership policy is really a very important part of broader uh, policy, which the West EU needs to have in, for, you know, Eastern part of European continent, which has not only some partnership countries, but also Russia itself. And that is a whole, you know, big part of European continent, which was suffering for, you know, several hundred years of, you know, without democracy, with stars, with general secretaries and so on and so on. And where really we cannot expect very uh, quick, you know, changes uh, towards different type of, you know, development of the countries. Uh, and that is remarkable what was, what had happened in this region, you know, during the last 10 years. So we have seen really uh, Maidan victory in Ukraine, which brought clear democracy, clean elections, you know. Here was President Poroshenko, now we have President Zelensky, you know. New elections will come again, we can expect that some changes will happen. Then after Ukraine, we, we saw, you know, in Armenia in 2018 again, you know, when people got rid of previous government and, and of course there are difficulties in Armenia because of the war, but nevertheless, we can see how things are developing. And now we saw during the last year, you know, when Belarusian people de decided to demand, to start to demand uh, changes, changes towards democracy, towards rule of law, which brings them much closer to European, you know, uh, style. Of course, still revolution is not over. Still people are struggling, you know, against the brutality of the regime. But uh, we can see how, how really this development in the waves, in the, in the steps in, in different countries are moving the same direction, out from autocracy towards democracy, uh, towards European values and things like that. And if you look into even into Russia, we can see also that uh, autocratic, you know, and, and aggressive Putin regime is facing a lot of problems, you know, with its own legitimacy when people in Russia also started to demand uh, big changes. So that is what is Eastern Partnership policy. What does it mean? It means, first of all, that countries are starting to change themselves and the countries are trying to, to, to come closer to, uh, to European Union. Uh, some of them more eager, some of them uh, more slow. Of course, differentiation is, is very much needed. Uh, but uh, that is how EU should also look into what EU needs to do in order to have this policy much more, you know, effective. And definitely, you know, uh, I see a lot of things which can be done. Uh, first of all, differentiation with uh, what we call trio strategy. Then much more clear um, strategy you know, how to bring at least partial membership or what we call intermediate membership, you know, with all the benefits of the membership uh, for such countries like Ukraine, Georgia and Moldova being part of single market and all other policies. But maybe, you know, for time being, uh, EU will not be able to provide all the possibilities to have to participate in decision making. That is, again, one of the proposals which we shall discuss next week in in, uh, uh, in Euronest uh, Parliamentary Assembly. Uh, and I see really that, you know, of course it will take time, but things can be pushed, things can move. And that is why I am still optimistic about Eastern Partnership Policy.
Okay, so thank you to you both, because I think uh, by your answers, you have covered pretty much all of the questions I wanted to ask you, uh, which uh, means that we are now going to be able to go more in depth with each of them. But first of all, I'd like to take a more critical uh, uh, angle here at the at the Eastern Partnership, Andreas, because your 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 take was very was very positive and very optimistic, and I I, I get your point, uh, but. At the same time, uh, I, I'm going to take my evil Frenchman hat on, as, as I often do in this program. So the Eastern Partnership was built as a project to bring peace and stability to the EU neighborhood. And, and that's, you know, that's not me uh, imagining things. It's just the way, the way it's presented, right? But if I look at the situation right now in the six countries of the Eastern Partnership, it looks that actually instability has increased. Joseph Borrell, I think, went on record saying that the EU neighborhood is engulfed in flames. That's uh, uh, EU neighborhood engulfed in flames is, is, is his words, not mine. Uh, if I look at each country individually, there is a war going on in Ukraine with Russian tanks currently massing at the border. Frozen conflicts in Georgia and Moldova. There's a hot war between Armenia and Azerbaijan that took place last year. And now there is unrest in Belarus. It, it looks to me that there is actually regression in the situation of the Eastern Partnership, at least from the perspective of peace, uh, uh, not necessarily from the perspective of democracy, as, as, as Andreas pointed out. So, uh, you know, I mean, there's obviously some, some, some thinking that needs to happen on our side uh, about this. And as, as I said a minute ago, the project was initiated with this, the stated goal of, of stabilizing the EU's neighborhood, which in itself, I think, is a geopolitical statement. But at the same time, the European Union refuses to call the Eastern Partnership pretty much any outside policy as a geopolitical project or a geopolitical object, while the Commission itself wants to define itself as geopolitical. Isn't this ambiguity part of the problem? Uh, and, and should we rethink the goals of the Eastern Partnership with the, with the geopolitical understanding? And that geopolitical understanding means that we need to take into account the russian turkey rivalry in the South Caucasus and also the immediate threat that Russia is posing to a number of countries uh, that are right now in between the EU and the Russian Federation. It's a very broad question. You know, uh, definitely, when we're talking about Eastern Partnership uh, uh, you know, and, and Eastern Partnership region, we cannot forget uh, that uh, it's a region which is in between of uh, EU and uh, Russia itself. And definitely we need to understand what is the strategic goal of uh, Kremlin regime, not of Russia, but Kremlin regime, you know, towards uh, this region. And I think that we can be very, 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 uh, you know, short on, 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 on naming, you know, on naming what are the Kremlin goals. I would, uh, you know, name, first of all, that Kremlin is very much afraid that this region can become a successful region through integration towards EU and NATO, because success of this region can be an inspiration for ordinary Russian people to seek you know, the same transformation of Russia, which would be the biggest dangers for such kind of you know, autocratic and kleptocratic regime, which we see now in Kremlin. So that is why Kremlin and Putin has the strategy how not to allow such countries like Ukraine, like Georgia and Moldova uh, to become successful countries. Uh, that is why on the EU side, we need to have also very clear strategy how not to allow Putin to be successful with his strategy in this region. And, uh, and, and, and the main goal uh, you know, should be on our side, really, 
uh, to look for those you know instruments, geopolitical instruments, political instruments, economical instruments, which would allow those countries to be much more you know effective in creating of their success. And how to create Ukrainian success, how to create Moldova success, how to create Georgia success. That should be the major question on our side. And uh, the answer should be also very clear. I do not see any other way how you know EU can help uh, Ukraine or Georgia or Moldova to become successful countries, only as through integration process. There is no single example which after you know Second World War would allow us to believe that on the European continent any country, especially which came out from you know from Soviet dictatorship, uh, would be able to create its own success on its own without without really integration process towards EU. So the strategy, geopolitical strategy of EU should be very clear uh, to do everything what is needed to create success of uh, those countries. That can be done, you know, in, in bringing, uh, first of all, security guarantees for those countries and then opening the doors for integration into, into all the EU policies, starting from uh, from uh, single market. Of course, you know, Putin regime, as I said, perhaps, uh, perhaps would be not so happy with such a strategy. But uh, on EU side, on the Western community side, we need to understand in a very clear way Success of Ukraine, success of Georgia, success of Moldova is the only way how in not a direct you know, way, but in, 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 in very effective way through you know, this soft power of EU, through creation of Ukrainian success and, and, and uh, success of other you know, Eastern partnership countries, EU can help you know, uh, Russian people to seek the same transformation as, uh, as it is going now you know, in Ukraine or starts to go to go to happen in, in Belarus. If Ukrainians and Belarusians are able to move towards democracy, Ukrainians are able to, to, to make a, European reforms, and I think that in some time uh, during several years we shall see that Belarusians will follow in our Ukrainian example. So then there is no reason for us to, to think and, and to believe that Russian people will not be able to do the same. So that's, that's what kind of strategy we need to have, really, and that's what will bring at the end peace and stability. Because now instability comes not from Ukrainians, not from Moldavians, not from Georgians. It comes from Moscow, from Kremlin. And the only way how to, how to, how to bring long-term stability is really to see also what can be done in order for, you know, for EU, for the West, to have a strategy how to assist Russian people in transformation of Russia. Uh, because democracies usually are not fighting among themselves. And if Russia will become a democracy, I hope that then, you know, peace will be will happen very soon in between of, of, uh, uh, of Russia and Ukraine, which still is, is struggling against the autocratic, you know, Putin regime. Uh, and of course, uh, Ukraine right now is in the front lines, and we know that there is much uh, uh, movement from uh, Russian troops at the, at the, at the border. So, Ivana, I would like to, 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 to ask this question to you, but from a Ukrainian perspective, what are you expecting the EU to do or to achieve with this Eastern partnership? Because obviously, Andreas's point of view is one of a, of, of a, a, a leader of a country that has joined the EU. What are your expectations and what are your aspirations on what the EU can do with this Eastern partnership? 
Well, let me let me start from something uh, that you've mentioned uh, a couple of minutes ago, Thibault, um, when you were saying that Eastern Partnership was built as a project to bring peace and stability to the European Union's uh, neighborhood. I, um, I think if we are to be objective and honest, definitely the Eastern Partnership 11 years ago has been a major step forward. It actually... Uh, attempt, first attempt to formulate some policy towards the east uh, of the European Union. However, it did uh, simultaneously both poor, uh, positive uh, things uh, as uh, it was a move and step forward, but at the same time, it kind of still um, uh, also contributed to some freezing of the um, of the region between e European Union and Russia. Uh, what what Andreas has actually mentioned, that this is the region between the EU and Russian Federation at this particular moment. And uh, it was only to some extent a geopolitical project because it that was not really publicly recognized uh, and admitted by highest officials from the EU at that particular moment. And I do not see it actually transforming right now to a more... Um, security-oriented uh, project as such. Uh, there is always a great, great uh, kind of uh, uh, caution uh, in any Eastern partnership gathering, um, also from the EU, to actually not to say anything that is connected to security. We have been uh, as Ukraine, we have been trying to raise the issue of uh, Russian influence and the need to kind of have a common response also through the Eastern Partnership uh, policy in some of, um, of the earlier summits, but never really succeeded in pushing any phrase close to this uh, through the resolutions of the summits before. So uh, right now, I sincerely do not believe that uh, Eastern Partnership will move forward uh, towards security angle or to, towards real countering of the Russian threat. Um, just look even on the current reaction to all this uh, huge military buildup that is happening on the borders of Ukraine uh, on the Russian Federation side uh, right now and look and, and compare the, uh, for example, U.S. response to this and reaction and EU's reaction. It's uh, always much slower. It's always much more um, kind of um, vague. Uh, it's, uh, it, it's not that concrete as I think the countries would expect. So uh, therefore, um, I think that at this particular moment, we have to understand that Russia is not going to give up on trying to influence all the countries of the Eastern Partnership uh, as it does influence right now and, it, it, and will try to uh, ensure, and here I totally agree with Andrews, that try to ensure that none of the countries from the Eastern Partnership succeeds in its desire to achieve total independence, prosperity, freedom, um, basic values that are guiding the countries that are part of the European Union, uh, and will do everything possible and impossible to exclude that. So from my perspective, the EU right now would have to 
to be as brave in its formulation of the policies as Andreas is brave in, in, in his ideas. Um, because we need something of the type of a policy like the EU has towards Western Balkans, for example, uh, which would be clear with clear, uh, you know, and possibilities, not necessarily goals, because the EU is not to set the goals for the region, but the EU is, can, uh, can definitely um, um, set the possibilities for the region. And uh, those possibilities are not clear even for the associated uh, countries like Moldova, Georgia and Ukraine. And we are still struggling for, for real European integration perspective for our countries that have made this choice and uh, are using right now the, the bilateral instrument of the association agreements to actually get closer to the standards, principles and, and ways of operation of the EU countries. Okay, so I think at this stage it's, it's becoming pretty clear that uh, there is a consensus among all of us that this partnership needs something of a shake-up. And uh, we, we already mentioned uh, uh, ways in which you know there could be some rethinking, and I think one of them was the problem of, uh, 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 of having six very different countries into one program that was kind of one-size-fits-all. As, as you mentioned, Ivana, the, the situation in, uh, in Belarus and the situation in Ukraine in terms of the, uh, of the aspirations, at least of the governments, is completely different. We have two countries within the neighborhood, which are Armenia and Azerbaijan, that, uh, that, that, that are pretty much, if not at war, at least in constant tension ever since their independence. And there was a hot war happening uh, last year. Uh, now, we talked about alternative formats, and I, I would love to, to, to hear about your, your thoughts on that. Andreas, you have proposed the associated trio. Uh, maybe you can tell us uh, about it, and then I'll, I'll give the floor to Ivana to, uh, uh, to talk about what format would, would be most interesting for, for, for Ukraine. But first, I'll give the floor to Andreas. Well, uh, you know, of course, uh, differentiation in this, you know, Eastern partnership policy is, is, is a must, uh, you know. You cannot keep at the same level, you know, Azerbaijan and Ukraine or, or you know, or, or Moldova and Belarus for time being. Uh, and uh, that is why, you know, EU needs to, to, to be more ambitious in bringing uh, into reality what EU speaks uh, by, by itself. You know, EU always is, 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 is declaring that uh, in Eastern partnership policy, differentiation should be based on the principle more for more, less for less. So the question is, what, what does it mean more for more? For example, if Ukraine really will be very successful in, 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 uh, in its you know, uh, reforms policy, if you know, Ukraine will be at the same level as, as uh, Western Balkans, which is uh, really the case. We, we recently got a special study from important uh, think tank, CEPS, Center for European Policy Studies here in Brussels, which is showing that uh, uh, Georgia, Ukraine, and Moldova are very similar in their developments, in their integration achievements uh, with uh, all the Western Balkan countries. And the only, only difference is that Western Balkan countries have membership perspective, but uh, uh, those three countries uh, still do not have. Uh, so that is where I think uh, the ball is on, 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 on EU side, you know, to decide how to proceed uh, further. What we are proposing, you know, and what, what the same SEP study is proposing, that maybe we can come out with some kind of uh, 
uh, intermediate, you know, status of uh, especially of Eastern Partnership countries, uh, you know, which would bring all the benefits for those countries of EU membership. But since you know EU has really big issues, big problems inside of itself, how to modernize its decision-making procedures? You know, how to how to make uh, institutions more effective, which are really quite in a, in a big difficulties when when the decisions need to be made uh, by by 27, 28, you know, member states. That is what what EU learned, and. Uh, and then, you know, with some, some kind of this, you know, intermediate status goal, very practical, very, very, very much clear, you know, that it's possible to achieve, it can be a new agreement in between of EU and, and those three, or you know, countries, how to proceed further and how to achieve this intermediate status, you know, which we sometimes uh, were, were trying to call uh, anti-chamber, you know, membership. Just before real membership, you are coming into this anti-chamber, you know, and where you are getting all the benefits, which means you are have you you have access to single market. You you are starting to have uh, financial support from different uh, EU funds. Uh, you are you are you know assisted by EU institutions to adapt to all the new key community and everything else. So that maybe could be some kind of uh, way forward, uh, since really on the EU side there is a problem that some. Uh, quite big countries, you know, are really mm, declaring in an open way that even for Western Balkans, they are still not ready uh, to give real membership uh, if EU institutions will not be reformed till that time. And and the biggest issue, you know, in, in which way uh, EU institutions should be reformed, that is a question of uh, how the decision-making procedures needs to be reformed in order, you know, for EU, which if if, we, if if it would enlarge both to Western Balkans and, and Eastern Partnership countries, it would have, you know, somewhere almost 40 members inside, you know, how to make uh, such big number of uh, member states happy with decision-making uh, procedures. And, and I guess that's a, an internal uh, question that the EU needs to uh, uh, needs to answer. Uh, but Ivana, uh, I'd like to get back to you here because there, there are two things that I think are seem to me interesting. Uh, I mean, particularly interesting uh, to ask you after 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 Andreas. First of all, the associated trio. So basically, Georgia, Ukraine, Moldova having a path on their own. Do you think this is a good idea, the right idea to move forward? And and second, uh, I'd like to get back to Andreas's idea about uh, a, a sort of uh, not only differentiating new uh, differentiated path, but also uh, some alternative uh, uh, path to membership. Uh, do you see this as as something that could be acceptable for Ukraine? Because yes, on the one hand, the Dutch voted no for in a referendum a few years ago to an association agreement with Ukraine. The last time I checked, there was only 27% support in France for enlargement to Ukraine, which was already a high number for a candidate country or, or a prospective member uh, in France. So, I mean, is this something to which Ukraine could sign up or is it, you know, nothing else and full membership will be acceptable for Ukraine? Well, let me kind of divide this this the answer to, into a couple of uh, answers because uh, we here in Ukraine totally support the approach towards the Eastern Partnership uh, that should use the differentiation and more more 
over. Uh, it's um, our colleagues in the European Parliament, uh, like Andrews and others, have been working on this for quite some time. Moreover, our countries on the both on both uh, parliamentary level and also on the governmental level, on the executive level, have been trying to coordinate our approaches in order to come up with one kind of um, kind of single voice policy within the Eastern Partnership towards our three countries. So yes, we totally share this approach if we are talking about the Eastern Partnership. Obviously, all of us are seeing uh, the track of uh, associated agreements, uh, association agreements, uh, as a bilateral track between the country and the EU as kind of main instrument of uh, integration because it definitely provides a lot of, of more both responsibilities but also opportunities. Um, so if that would be also kind of um, backed by transformed Eastern partnership, then it could be a real uh, additional instrument of this integration. So while we have um, uh, stated in our constitution that uh, EU and NATO membership is the strategic goal and uh, the final goal for Ukraine um, as such, however, we also understand that it takes time to actually do the homework and um, to be ready to, to join. And I think different um, uh, kind of intermediary uh, steps could be offered with, but with clear understanding from the EU, given from the EU, that yes, um, uh, you are eligible, uh, you are capable, you are uh, potentially welcome once you're ready. And that's something that is still very much missing behind the, the different diplomatic clauses when we are talking about the official language uh, from the EU. So, uh, you know, we can talk about sectoral integration, we can talk about this um, new and, and I think very interesting idea of intermediate uh, membership as a step forward towards the, the actual final and full membership. Um, because, yes, it's about the um, ability of, of the society and the country to use the freedoms that the EU provides. It's about single market, but it's also about, um, you know, freedom of financial flows. It's, uh, it's about uh, um, next step beyond visa-free, about really free movement of people without limitation and uh, free movement of capitals and so on. So... Um, I think with all these different steps and the prospect being provided to uh, all of our countries, that would be very, very um, kind of welcome from from our side. And you know, uh, Tibo, you are uh, you are speaking about the slow numbers as you as as you you believe uh, of support of um, you, you know Ukrainian uh, Ukraine's membership or uh, in the EU. Um, in, and also, you are referring to the uh, to the referenda in the Netherlands on the association agreement with Ukraine. I have to here actually underline something uh, something very different uh, and 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 highlight something very different. Um, we have to understand that um, 
perception of uh, Ukraine and other countries of the uh, Eastern Partnership, for that matter, in the um, European Union countries has been shaped for decades by, um, you know, sometimes uh, tacit and now much over the last years, the pretty loud uh, Russian propaganda machine that has been working both through information uh, uh, assets, but also working with uh, different politicians, also working with different um, kind of think tanks, some of the media and so on, and uh, has been succeeding in twisting the view of our countries and our uh, societies within the European Union communities. And so, you know, when we, for example, we're talking about 29% of uh, of um, French supporting Ukraine's membership in the EU, um, that's a kind of not very exciting number. But also when we look in an, at another number that right now Ukraine is actually at the forefront of um, protecting the Western civilization from the um from from another part of the hybrid war that Russia has waged on the western civilization from the military uh, part of this war um then um if we look at other numbers 60% of ukrainians are ready to defend their country um with weapons uh, while only, um, I, 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 I'm afraid to, to be mistaken, but I think it's around 29% of French are ready to defend their, their country with, um, with weapons in their hands. So um, I think um, that we have to understand that uh, the attack of the Russian Federation right now is not exclusively against Ukraine. And this is very well understood in Lithuania. This is very well understood in Poland. They understand that if Ukraine falls under this attack, if Ukraine does not succeed, then Russian appetite will uh, extend to, again, Baltic states, to, to Poland. And if they will not uh, they will not survive this this attack then the other countries come in like france or germany and and we have to understand this that it's about the attack of the western civilization and here we have to stand together so i think there is a clear also security interest from the eu to have our countries that are that have made very clear decisions for themselves because we paid for our decision with blood and are still paying with blood for the decision to be free to uh come back to the to the family that is based on shared values which we also believe in um so those countries have kind of to to be i think that we don't have don't need to prove yet another time that uh, we really sincerely want to rejoin the European family, to uh, to return to the European family where we belong. Uh, we just need to have uh, support in our efforts to, to come back home. Indeed. Uh, and uh, coming at a time uh, that is so difficult for Ukraine, I think this is, uh, uh, this is an excellent uh, way to... Uh, to at least conclude this part of the of the, of, of, of the discussion, uh, and uh, I think it was Robert Kagan who uh, uh, reminded his uh, his audience in, in his latest book, uh, "The Jungle Grows Back," that uh, Russia's interests uh, do not end in Ukraine; they actually start in Ukraine, and they uh, they actually include uh, the Baltic states, 
uh, Poland and, uh, and basically uh, any country for the West, because as we know, the Ruskimir uh, has no uh, borders. That's not me t- saying it. It's actually Russian uh, officials. Uh, but let's move a little bit away uh, uh, from, from, from from this particular question. I'd like, we, we have just like three, four minutes, and, and I would like to ask you a very specific question about Belarus, which is on the border, both with Ukraine and Lithuania, and, and, and the situation is very worrying. The past 12 months have been uh, uh, rich in events, let's put it like, like that, uh, with a clear mishandling of the COVID-19 crisis by the authorities, presidential election that was clearly stolen, protests that have been ongoing since the summer, and, and much violence that has been uh, put by the authorities to, uh, uh, to bring down the the, the protest, the leader of the movement, Svetlana Tihanovskaya, has recently been branded as a terrorist by the powers in Minsk. You can obviously see the heavy hand of Russia behind the repression. Uh, I'd like to ask both of you very quickly, what should be done about Belarus and, and how can the West uh, uh, react to what's, to what's going on? Uh, first, Andreas, and then I'll give the floor to Ivan. I think that, first of all, Real terrorist in 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 real uh, meaning of that word is of course Lukashenko and all his you know regime who is brutally suppressing all the people using really terrorist method. Uh, second, really, I think that history is on the side of uh, Belarusian people, and uh, and at the end they will win. The question is you know how long it will take and what uh, and what we can do in order to to assist them to achieve uh, what uh, what is you know. What is very essential, you know, democracy, rule of law, human rights, and so on and so on. So, of course, the major goal is to give back to to Belarusian people what was stolen by Lukashenko regime is really to have free and fair elections. Free and fair elections cannot happen if you know if more than 300 people are kept as political prisoners in the in the prison. So what I would like to wish, you know, I would like to to wish to you know Western community, and especially to European Union, really to be much more vigilant, uh, much more you know uh, taking the leadership in clear leadership, you know, in in those steps which are needed to be done in order to really to assist Belarusian people, and uh, and that is why sometimes I am asking myself very simple question: so who in the West, or at least in the European Union, has uh, no uh, personally has such an agenda to assist Belarusian people to 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 have uh, free elections and, and freedom for political prisoners. Who is uh, who has this daily responsibility to uh, to do whatever it takes, you know, in order to uh, to fulfill those you know wishes of Belarusian people? That is what I see as a missing, you know, missing. Uh, uh, missing instruments on the Western side, and that is what what we are trying to do. You know, here really asking and 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 trying to convince both EU institutions and and member states uh, to have some some somebody you know high, which we can call a high level mission or high level envoy, uh, like you know Charles Michel did for for Georgia. Why not? You know, somebody would take from the same level. You know responsibility for uh, Belarusian crisis resolution. Thank you, Andreas. Ivana, I know that Ukraine right now is very busy with the the, 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 the very worrying uh, military buildup that is going on 
on the on, on the Russian at the Russian border. But uh, you obviously keep an eye on what's going on in Belarus. What what is your view on that, and and, and what 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 should the West do? Well, you know, Ukraine definitely needs a uh, free and independent from Russian influence Belarus on its border. And uh, moreover, I think, uh, um, you know, thousands of kilometers of the secure border without Russian troops uh, from the Belarusian side against Ukraine, that would also help. So definitely we are very much interested that the situation there um turns into into democratic development for the for the, the Belarusian society. I can definitely I can what I can clearly say is that I understand what kind of western approach should not be used. It's the approach of um, expressing uh, over and over again deep concern without actions being uh, taken after those words that have been spoken politically. Um, I think we also learned on our own experience back uh, during Maidan, you know, for us, uh, it was very important what the uh, what the EU officials and, and politicians have been saying, but at the beginning it was even, uh, even when uh, Russia annexed uh, Crimea, the first initial sanctions were pretty pitiful. And so uh, that was not the response uh, that, that Ukraine would deserve and would, uh, would expect, so to say. So I think right now uh, also the, the clear leadership, as Andreas was uh, saying, that there is, a, there is lack of this leadership and, and the focus of the, uh, of the European Union on the situation on, uh, in Belarus. Um, and right now I can say that unfortunately, even though it's probably tactical, it's probably, I hope it's temporary and, and I hope it's not, um, you know, final, but the victory is on Lukashenko's side at this particular moment, notwithstanding the fact that, that the Belarusian society is not giving in and is not also giving uh, up. But I think it deserves more uh, more attention and more clear actions and, and a strategy also from the from the European Union and not just uh, reactive um, reactive behavior to whatever is happening on the ground. And that's, I think, lacking right now. Mm -hmm. uh, I guess deeds, not words, is something that we uh, that we hear very much, uh, at least at IRI, uh, Think Atlantic, a, 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 a recurring feature of uh, what our guests are saying about what, what the uh, European uh, diplomacy should be. Um, we could have, frankly, I, I could continue this conversation with both of you uh, uh, for another two hours, but I know that you are very busy, so we are going to end on this note. Ivana Klimpushtinsadze, Andreas Kubilius, thank you so much for taking part in today's show, uh, and I hope we will have a chance to have you, uh, both of you, back soon. Uh, if you enjoyed listening to this podcast, then I'd like to invite you to check out the day-to-day -day work of our two guests on Twitter. They are at, at iKlimpush and at Kubilius. Uh, you can also check their parliamentary activity on the websites of the European Parliament and the uh, Verhovna Rada, uh, which are europal.europa.eu and rada.gov.
UA. And of course, while you are browsing, browsing the web, you should definitely check out IRI's website at iri.org to check out what we do to promote democracy, not only on both sides of the Atlantic, but also in the Eastern Partnership countries. Uh, we're also on Twitter at IRI Global and of course at Think Atlantic. This is the end of this episode of Think Atlantic, the podcast that provides you with thought leadership for the future of the transatlantic space. Many thanks to Stanislava Stahova, Hannah Mont, and Sam Johannes for producing this series and special thanks to Alisa Muzerg of Aero Creative for her help in uh, preparing this, uh, uh, this specific uh, uh, program. We will be back in two weeks with our guest, Michael Kimmich, to talk about his most recent book, The Abandonment of the West, The History of an Idea in American Foreign Policy. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please subscribe to the show. And of course, share it with your friends and colleagues. We'll love it when we get more listeners. Talk to you soon.